wide unclasp the tables of their thoughts. These same thoughts people their little worlds. Welcome to Wide Unclasp. Welcome to Wide Unclasped. I am your host, Chris Garcia. We're looking at the Winchester House and general paranormal happenings and so forth. And today's going to be a little more house-specific. And in-specific, of house-specific, is going to be looking at Sarah Winchester and some of the early rumors that came after her death about hauntings while she was alive. But I want to start by reading her obituary. And this is the one that ran the most places, including, I believe, the New York Times. Sarah Winchester, philanthropist, dies. San Jose, September 6th. Sarah Winchester, widow of William Wirt Winchester, son of the founder of the Winchester Arms Company, died at her home near here today. She has lived a quiet, secluded life here for about 30 years. For many years, she's aided financially the Department of the Connecticut State Hospital devoted to the treatment of tuberculosis patients. That's actually a fairly good bio, if you think about it. It basically says where she was, why she was important. Her, it mentions her philanthropy, which is something that we'll be talking about a lot as her philanthropic efforts and where they were focused, which is largely New Haven and San Francisco. Less so San Jose, at least as far as I can tell. But we'll be talking more about that in future episodes. But just a few weeks later... Oakland newspaper printed a large thing about the spirit house, which is how they referred to the Winchester mansion. And here's just a, an interesting point. And this is one of the portions of this. And again, this is less than, I believe, less than a month after her passing. And this is an excerpt. I'll try and link to this somehow. Uh, actually, it's public domain. I can just copy it and post it, I think. Fear of bodily harm, we are told by ones who should know, may have been the motive back of the strained self-isolation of Mrs. Winchester. A story of a great fright, sustained by the lady of the manor, is told. Mrs. Winchester, many years ago, kept in a wine cellar of the great house quantities of the finest vintage of the land. One morning, as she entered the cellar, runs the tale, she was horrified by seeing before her, on the clean surface of of a furnace pipe, the imprint of a black hand. Terrified, Mrs. Winchester is said to have fled the cellar, ordering the doors double padlocked forever. To this day, it is said the double padlocks still remain, now rusty with age, the wine still within. Now, there's a whole lot more to this article that's interesting, and I'll be coming back to it a lot. It really shows why she was viewed so strangely. But I think one of the things that this shows because this was before the house had been purchased to be turned into what we now know as the Winchester Mystery House, a, you know, a point of tourists, a tourist attraction. Why? Why this thing starting to come out? Now, the note of one who should know would mean they probably got the story from someone who was either an employee, her niece potentially, I guess, or one of the few people in the area that she would have regularly or at least semi-regularly interacted with. The story goes that no one went to the Winchester house, and I don't believe that's true. I believe she had some dealings with more than just her lawyer, and it's potential, I guess, her lawyer or maybe her doctor, but there are others who she would have been involved with in business to a degree. 
some of the canners, some of the fruit merchants, so forth, who would have purchased her work, likely would have had some intermediaries, but for high-level deals, it would make sense if she had some level of interaction. One of the reasons she didn't leave her house, towards the end of her life at least, um, even that's not entirely true because she went from house to house to house, was the difficulty she had going between places because of her arthritis, which, you know, makes sense. She also had a houseboat, which I really want to find out more about. I hear that it burned in 1929, but there's not a ton of clear information on just it. But the seeds for what the first owners, and there have only been, I believe, two owners total, I think they've changed a little bit, for what they would capitalize on, she was already seen as eccentric. She was already considered to be a mystic fan. But here, the house specifically is being pointed to as being haunted. Now, the black handprint on a clean furnace pipe is interesting. But she's also a woman who had a lot of servants. Why would she be down in a wine cellar? Does it entirely make sense? No. But it's also the type of thing that rings true. There are ghosts seen on the ground somewhat frequently. The most frequent are a man with a wheelbarrow down in the uh, basement. I've heard names for him variously given as Harold, Willard, Walter, Miles also, but I don't know. The interesting thing is Sarah Winchester is by far the most frequently seen, though she is rarely seen in the house compared to how much she is seen on the grounds. And I've told the story about when I worked at the Century 23 for a day, I usually worked at the 22, and the 23 was the closest to the house, and how at one point three of my colleagues had gone out to, they claim, uh, bring in the garbage. They had actually gone out to do whippets. Um, but before they even managed, they saw a form emerge from the bushes that separated the parking lot of the Century 23 and the Winchester house. And they said they saw it walk through a car, and it was a small woman. That is not the only sighting of Sarah Winchester I have heard of, either in that parking lot, in the storage room of the Century 22, which would have been on her land, uh, what is probably about 150, maybe maybe 150 yards from the from the house as we know it today. Lots of people have seen her or felt her more often in the house itself. One thing I've been looking for is a good topographical map, and ideally either a photograph or a good drawing of the area of the Winchester Mansion before the installation of Highway 280. A bunch of reasons, but one of them is, was that area, because I believe it was a part of her land, and I believe her land went fairly far back. Didn't go all the way to where Mr. Lawrence's land was. And Mr. Lawrence was a major figure who I will talk about at some point. But my question has always been, was it a natural depression that they then widened to put Highway 280 in? Or was it completely created by grading? Was it land that she would have used? Now, Yonata Via, the actual mansion, she's seen there mostly by employees, mostly at night. But to me, it would make sense if she was seen more on the ground. Not because of, you know, she's keeping an eye on things, but because there is this sense of 
escape. She spent so much time in the house, she didn't get to explore the other regions. So maybe it's a yearning thing. But one interesting sighting was there's a street. It's not Lenzen. I can't remember what the street is called. But it, if you turn off of Winchester Boulevard, it was then Las Gatas Santa Clara Road. And if you're headed towards the house, you would turn right. And on your left-hand side is the house, and on the right-hand side is now the construction, and then there's the Century 21 remaining. But at that point, there were the three movie domes, also another episode coming later. And it was late at night, and the final movie at the Century 21 was ending around 12.30 in the morning. But it was a weekday, so there was no one there, but someone's mom or friend or something was coming to pick them up. And they could see that there was someone in the road as they started to make the turn. And when they saw her, she was a small woman dressed in black. And of course, when the headlights swooped over, she disappeared. Now, this story has come to me, of course, third, probably fourth or fifth hand. And it has a whole lot of tie-ins with other stories that are of the similar type. But what makes this one more interesting to me is that it's in the road. A good 25 yards, maybe 50, maybe 75 feet from the edge of the house. Looking at the existing photos, that certainly would have been orchard land at that point. Which makes me wonder if she was out enjoying the trees. Was this a place that she experienced? Because my, my question is this. Yes, we know she didn't venture out a lot when she was at the house. And she wasn't at the house as much as we believe. She had multiple properties that she could go to. But when she was at the house, was she walking the grounds? I'd kind of like to think so. One of the stories I was vaguely aware of about the house, yet not fully, was that of the Hebe statue. And I have to thank Captain of the Labyrinth for bringing that to mind, because I, I vaguely knew the statue. I remembered when I went in 2005, because there was a period where I probably hadn't stopped by in a year or two, maybe a year and a half. I must have taken, because I took the kids, uh, the little girl I babysat, Evelyn and her friend, to the house, I think in 2005, maybe even 2006, to go see. And there was a statue I didn't recognize. And it had been gone for a long time, about 60 years, apparently. And Hebe is a very interesting sort of character. And to go back, we have to go to ancient Greece. <coughs> and Hebe is more or less the goddess of youth. And Juventus is the Roman god that's sort of equivalent. But Hebe is the daughter of Zeus. So many gods were, of course. But it was actually Zeus and Hera, not one of his side quests. Um, and what, what she did was she would bear nectar and ambrosia to the gods on Mount Olympus. And eventually she married Heracles, who is Hercules in the Roman, and she passed that on to Ganymede. But what's fascinating is that, so one of the things 
is that she was seen as the god of gladdening or the gladdening princess. And there were festivals to her. She was also seen as sort of the goddess of forgiveness and mercy. But one of the interesting things is she was sort of the purveyor of eternal youth, which is why she would bring the ambrosia and the nectar. She was the youngest of the gods, according to philostracists, which is an interesting point because as the youngest of the gods, she had a role to play in that pantheon. And her role was literally bringing youth, bringing sustenance. In essence, it's the story of how do we keep the elders whole and well. And the key to that is youth. The key to that is Hebe. One of my favorite uh, things is that she had two children with Heracles, Alexarius and Anacetus. Anacetus, I can never remember how to pronounce Greek names. And they were the guardians of Mount Olympus. And they were sort of seen as gatekeepers, which is... You know, we assume that that is what Heracles did throughout the myth. Now, you could say, well, Sarah Winchester purchased these, and they were just, you know, she was trying to make a point of uh, being, you know, she wanted to bring youth to the place. She wanted to find eternal youth. If you really wanted to tie it into the large-scale legend, of course, she wanted eternal youth because if she built continuously, she would be alive forever, and then she would have the youth of hair, blah, 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 blah. Of course, that's garbage, but it does make for good myth. The statue is not my favorite statue on the, on the grounds. It's a nice one. And it's much better, I think, than the other representations of Hebe, particularly paintings. Though there is one, a very famous one by Elizabeth Vigi Labrum which is the portrait of Anne Pitt as Hebe, which is a stunningly beautiful composition. And there's lots of sort of connections between Hebe and eagles, because eagles represented the immortality, apparently, uh, some of which are kind of cool, uh, particularly the pre-Raphaelites who got into sort of that, that thing. And then there's a beautiful statue in, I believe it's in the V&A. Otherwise, I have no idea where it would have come from. But these are the elements of the Winchester House that often get missed. These are the pieces that you try to find meaning in, but there may not be any meaning other than that it's just a really freaking cool statue. And I believe this one was shown at an exposition in San Francisco, and she acquired it, and then it was outside for a number of years, and then the elements started to take their toll, and then it was restored and returned in 2004. But I think the key is, what was Sarah Winchester trying to do with this? And I think the beauty of it is that it is a thing of beauty. Statuary was a sign of wealth in extremis. Always has been, always will be. Anyone can own a painting. Statues are different. Because it indicates that you have a place for a statue. And statues take up more, more space than their physical size. Because you have to have a way to look at the statue. You have to have space. It is an indication of the availability of room, either interior or exterior, for a woman of Sarah Winchester's wealth and class and status. The statue of Hebe is, it's a natural, but it's also an indicator. 
It is an indicator of her position, of her time, of her wealth. She had the space on a ranch, a working ranch that provided so much fruit. She allocated space to statuary. That's big. And as I go on, I'm going to talk more about how the sort of the statuary idea evolved and worked. I should also mention that this is one of a pair of statues. <laughs> but this is obviously the one that I think is cooler. I think it's really important to remember that the Winchester House is a part of an ecosystem, and always has been. The things around it are affected by it as much as it is affected by the things around it. This was never more obvious than the fires at Santana Row. And I remember exactly where I was and exactly what I was doing. Now, let me take you back to 2002. Actually, let me take you back even further. Since the 1960s, and maybe even the late 50s, there had been a shopping center called Town & Country Village. It was directly across the street from the Winchester House. It ran from Stevens Creek Boulevard all the way up to, well, there was a little side street. I can't remember what it was called. I almost lived there once. Then you got to 280. But it was almost all that space. And... Town and Country went through some ups and downs. There were some really important things. I'm going to be talking a lot about the things that were there. Things like the Chuck E. Cheese, the pipe shop. There were a couple of very interesting restaurants, one of which famous for its breakfast. And there was a movie theater, the Town and Country Theater. Well, it all sort of went to hell. And it, I believe in 1999, they closed it, maybe even 2000. And they tore it down, raised it, and then they started to build Santana Row. And the idea was it would be a luxury, upscale, mixed residential and commercial space. Upscale was always used, or luxury was always used when describing it. And it was described as the most ambitious project of its kind in the United States. Just saying that even now brings the bile to the back of my throat. Well, on August 19th, 2002, I was driving from work. I worked at Moffett Field, and I was living in Santa Clara. And as I was driving home, I could see a huge column of smoke. Now, I'm the son of a former firefighter, so when I was a kid, Dad's beeper, and it's huge beeper, like six inches long, three inches wide, and we used to go to fires. Even if he wasn't assigned to the fire or called on, we would go, so I figured I would go, and I drove up Winchester, and I could see the flames. I then turned around and went home. I believe it, Actually, I believe at that time I was living in Sunnyvale, but I made the trip anyhow. What was burning was directly across the street. Building 7 of Santana Row was burning. And what happened was a five-alarm fire, the largest structure fire in San Jose history, and embers were coming off. And the roofs of several apartment buildings, because they were mostly apartment buildings around there, embers started landing on them, and some of them caused, I believe, minor fires. Nothing terrible, but it definitely did make a lot of concern literally, this is a fire next to the Winchester house. Completely wooden house. And I stayed glued to every report I could the entire time. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. So I basically watched TV, local news. But other than the 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock news, there wasn't anything around you could watch. The house was spared. The wind was blowing right and embers didn't land on the roof. I believe they also wetted the roof, most of the house. So that was a good move. But it shows how fragile... That entire space is. And how everything has an effect on the house, and the house has an effect on everything. 
Thanks for listening to Wide Unclasped. I'm Chris Garcia. Hope you'll listen some more. One of the things I really want to do, of course, with this is to promote other podcasts out there. And San Jose is one. It's been slowly lately, but it is a wonderful, wonderful podcast that looks at San Jose history. Its logo features the Winchester House, but it has some great material. It does a very thorough look at a lot of different places around the valley, and I cannot recommend it high enough. Just give it a listen. All right, until next time, when I'll be talking about Chuck E. Cheese, my fascination with the door, the front door, a door that kept opening and closing, which will be me reading from Wide Unclasped, the zine, and also a discussion of some of the figures. I'm going to start this as a period. Some of the other figures who were in the valley and nearby that Sarah Winchester probably didn't directly interact with, but who definitely had an effect on the whole Winchester thing. So I hope you'll stay tuned to Wide Unclass.